Uh, all right. So welcome everybody to episode. <coughs> for God's sake, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> ready now. I'm ready. <laughs> right. Hello everybody, it's Panicky here, and this is our final entry into our It's the Future I've Tasted It mini-series. Although, we actually do have one more coming up, which we recorded this very year of our Lord, 2022. So it's not as hideously outdated as uh, the first five have been. So look forward to that. But this was the final of our original run. This one was again recorded on Clean Feed. There are a few audio issues that I would have liked to clean up if I had a multi-track version of this, but I don't. So I still think it's perfectly fine, but you know, I'm just saying. Ashley is still in Italy, but she desperately wanted to tell you about some storyline in Bridgerton that I haven't seen, so she sent a voice memo, and you may note some Italian ambiance in the background of that, so that's fun. All right, well, without further ado, let's talk pollinators. Take it away, past us. So, and it's all about pollinators, because that's where we get our food from, it gets pollinated by the insects and the birds and all of that stuff, and then, well, actually, you're going to get into this. I'm going to get into that, yeah. Yeah, Anyway, but it's food related. So don't jump onto my questions. All I'm trying to say is that it's food related, and that's why it's in the food series. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can make this fit. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So, Bees. Bees yes. have obviously become a somewhat of a poster child, I'd say, for biodiversity, mm. uh, which I was trying to work out why. I'm assuming it's just because they, they're, they're so cute, aren't they? And well, bumbling. and yes. they're, they're a relatable insect. I think it has to do with the whole... Do you know the term charismatic megafauna? I may have mentioned this before. <laughs> I don't think I do, but that's yeah, an so, excellent term. Well, it's like, okay, so you know how the World Wildlife Fund has like a panda as its mascot? Right. And it's yep. like, obviously pandas are endangered. They're not necessarily the most endangered animal or the most like crucial mm. endangered animal, but people like them. They're, they're cute. They're big, charismatic megafauna. They're likable big animals. Oh, in, in fact, this, this applies to plants as well so apparently um, botanists are more likely to study pretty flowers than uh, <laughs> than boring looking plants that's so interesting and you would mm. think botanists would want to like buck that trend and do something a bit unusual but like <laughs> even within the field they're like yeah i like the pretty ones yeah that's so funny <laughs> Yeah, so I think that bees, obviously they're not megafauna, they're microfauna, but they are charismatic. They do give us honey, people like that. I think people are fascinated with bees. People think of bees as being, like, good guys, generally. Although my daughter is terrified of them. And fair enough. I mean, I think that's, you know, like... She got stung rolling down a hill. The only time... Have you ever been stung before? The only time I got stung was on a roller coaster, and one got down my back and stung me on the bottom. Um, yeah, that's really not good. No, I've been not stung, when you're on a roller coaster. Yeah, I've been stung once, but I don't know whether it was a bee or a wasp. What happened was I was at a wedding, and I I was a kid. I think there was a playground next to the church or whatever, or next to the reception hall, wherever we were. And I went to the playground, and I was going to get on the swings, and I put my hand on like the chains of the swings, and there was obviously mm. something on the chain that i crushed it hurts a lot all that came away was like gunk on my finger so because i crushed Mm. it so i don't know what it was (laughs) but um it hurt really badly but yeah i don't know if it was a bee or a wasp or itching powder or (laughs) a used needle or (laughs) i truly don't know what, what exactly it was but it was something not very nice and painful I may have been stung by a bee as a very small child and not really remember. I have a vague, like, memory of being, like, a toddler and getting stung, but it might be a Mm. dream. So I don't don't have, like, a strong memory of being stung specifically by a bee. But, you know, I get a bit nervous, and I think that's natural, and I think that's, like, it's good to be respectful of animals that can hurt you. And also, they die when they sting you, so it's good to be a little bit cautious. Like, it's for both of our sakes. I think I read somewhere that there's a myth in some cultures that if a bee lands on you, it's lucky and money's coming. Oh, I think. that's interesting. I only read it in passing, so I'm not 
um, no, <laughs> confirming. I, mean, I completely that. believe that's true. In my research, I found so much mythology around bees. There was very little that I could actually fit in because I had so much to talk about. Like bees are so like mm. embedded in literature and pop culture and everything. But there is a ton of mythology around bees. I would not be surprised if that were true in some culture. Yeah, money spiders. Did you have it when you uh, saw a little yeah, black yeah. spider, money spiders? Yeah, yeah. So they were the only spider I used to like as a kid. Anyway, yeah. coming back to my bees. Let's, so, let's get back to it. <laughs> back to bees. Bees have become a bit of a poster child, but mm-hmm. they are a critical pin in our ecosystem infrastructure along with other pollinators and they are essential for our food security and nutrition for life on earth and i know this sounds like a complete overstatement (laughs) but 90 percent of plants including three quarters of human crops are dependent on the services of pollinators and they do it for free yeah it doesn't sound like an overstatement to me at all that sounds yeah but you've been doing a lot of reading about it (laughs) mostly mostly (laughs) the other side but yeah true okay so i have a long list here so are you ready? Um, these are I'm things ready. that we can we can thank bees for and other insect pollinators. But one in the list isn't really anything to do with bees. So right. we have... And I so, have to suss it out. Is that right? Yes. Is this a question? Okay. okay yes, okay, this is okay, a question. Okay, okay. So which one don't we have to thank the bees oh, for? God. Everything else we do. Okay. We have soybeans, mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts, mm-hmm. tomatoes, mm-hmm. cucumber, mm-hmm. carrot, mm-hmm. corn, uh-huh. apple... Right. Avocado. Yeah. I've got another 10 here. I'll go quicker. And I have Uh, to figure out which one. And you criticise my questions for being too hard because I have a choice out of four. Okay, come on. You you can use some logic. Cacao, Uh coffee, Uh grapes, which means wine, Uh strawberry, Uh black pepper, lavender, Uh tea, sunflower, cotton. Okay, so I know for a fact that tomatoes and apples require pollination by insects because I am attempting to grow both of those. I imagine that the same would be true of cucumbers and avocados because they're both fruits. I think cucumbers fruits. Are they? I don't know. I always get confused with that. They're always in the salad section. Salad fruits. Well, I mean, yeah, but it's like tomatoes. <laughs> but yes, I think know, like they're savory fruits. But that savory fruits. Yeah, yes. I think. I think. Yeah, I think that. I think they're fruits. So I hope I w- they're fruits because we've both said that now. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that most fruits need pollinators, which would include grapes and strawberries. Oh God. Okay, go, go through the list. Say anything that isn't a fruit. So <laughs> oh, that's off, like a test for me. Miss off the um, fruits. <laughs> soybeans, Brussels sprouts, mm-hmm. carrot, corn, cacao, coffee, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, black pepper, lavender, tea, sunflower, cotton. Right. So I know that uh, bees love lavender, so I'd assume that that, although we don't eat that, but anyway. Well, you can eat. I mean, you can. You can. I made lavender biscuits. Yes, you can. You're right. I'm sorry. Um, yes. I, I had some lavender boils. You can't sweets. eat cotton, I don't think, but I did <laughs> add that in for interest, given how much we use cotton as well. Well, I'm going to assume that that's a real one. Then. Oh, right. You <laughs> gave that away. <laughs> Oops. Um, you have some beans there. I'm assuming if one bean relies on pollinators, all the beans rely on pollinators. So I'm going to say all of the beans use insect pollinators. Cotton. Oh, man. This is hard. Um, Good. <laughs> okay um is it tea is it tea the odd one out i don't know is that your final answer no yes oh. whatever yes 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 no yes 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 you're wrong oh tea is pollinated by pollinators i couldn't um, remember any of the others <laughs> <laughs> too many um the answer is corn corn's wind pollinated oh okay yeah which when you think about the plants in the field i can i can see that mm-hmm and it's one of the few I can actually visualise the plant. But yeah, anyway, no, I, it's I mean, just... I, I think I think I probably would have got if I'd written everything down. I probably would have got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. Do it. That's anyway. a cross for you. Whatever. Nil point, just like the UK oh. and the Eurovision. <laughs> yes, how sad! I didn't watch it. I don't care. <laughs> no, we didn't either. So yes, the rest of the list though are all either completely dependent or at least reliant in some way on pollinators, which is a huge amount of good stuff there that I like to eat. Indeed, yeah. Interestingly though, or at least I thought was interesting, it's not just insects which are pollinators. So the next question, gorillas are pollinators, true or false? Uh, Okay, because of the way you framed the question, I feel like it has to be true. I'm trying to figure out. (laughs) Yeah, because like they've got their big, the the little stubby gorilla hands. They're reaching for the fruit. Hang on, now it's flowers though, isn't it? So 
Now, why would gorillas be picking flowers? Because they like them. Humans like them, so gorillas might like them. And they stick their noses in the flowers to smell them, and then they go to the next flower and they stick their nose in the next flower. Yeah, I'll go for that. I'll bite. You're true? Yeah, whatever. Okay, no, it's false. Oh, I wanted to (laughs) believe it. (laughs) (laughs) It is false, but um, as they forage for food, gorillas do help to spread seeds. Oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's a little bit It's not pollinating, and and they're letting sunlight for kind of plants grow, and apparently some people call them the gardeners of the forest. However, there are some really interesting animals that do pollinate, which I... Can I just, can I just... Yeah, go um, Yeah, sorry, because I went (laughs) to an open day at an orchard the other day, and apparently, so apples originated in Kazakhstan, or <laughs> it's thought that they did anyway and the theory is that they were eaten by bears and uh, bears were what helped them spread into the middle east and hmm. europe and interesting uh, now humans got hold of them at a certain point and started spreading them further afield but i think that initial spread was because bears liked the taste of apples interesting yeah huh. not just adam and eve then well, uh, do you know, it's, um, it doesn't actually say in the Bible that it was an apple. It's in all the pictures. I know it's in the pictures. <laughs> all right, anyway, go on, go on, go on. Okay, so there are some, well, I thought quite unexpected animals mm. that do pollinate. Um, so vertebrate pollinators include bats, several species of monkeys. I spent a while trying to find a monkey or type of ape that didn't wasn't related to pollinating and so came across gorillas Mm -hmm. um rodents lemurs tree squirrels birds such as hummingbirds and and some parrot which i um, knew about bats and small birds but uh, i didn't know about the monkeys and stuff it makes sense when you think about it but just never occurred to me before so at a period in human existence where as we've discussed in previous episodes populations continue to rise and there's increasing pressure on and somewhat imperfect food infrastructure that we have our dependence on pollinators is very vivid and so as we're trying to continue to feed humanity we need to be looking after our main free agricultural contributors <laughs> pollinators or and maybe found... we should be paying them for their labor i did yeah <laughs> we're exploiting them anyway carry on. <laughs> i was reading an article in um, national geographic by elizabeth colbert mm-hmm. and i kind of want to read the whole quote because what she said is just so stark but it's a bit long i'm going to read it out anyway and then yeah, you, do can, it. you can cut it so she says habitat loss driven primarily by human expansion as we develop land for housing, agriculture and commerce, is the biggest threat facing most animal species, followed by hunting and fishing. Even when habitat is not lost entirely, it may be changed so much that animals cannot adapt. Fences fragment a grassland or logging cuts through a forest, breaking up migration corridors, pollution renders a river toxic, pesticides kill widely and indiscriminately. Mm. To those local threats, one must increasingly add global ones. Trade, which spreads disease and invasive species from place to place, and climate change, which eventually will affect every species on Earth, starting with the animals that live on cool mountaintops or depend on polar ice. All of these threats lead directly or indirectly back to humans and our expanding footprint. Most species face multiple threats. Some can adapt to us others will vanish and it's just a stark very stark paragraph yeah it's pretty depressing not gonna lie it's pretty depressing um so kind of touching back onto more the biodiversity side the rate that obviously the issue with the pollinators is that we are ruining their habitats and they have nothing to eat we're using pesticides which harm them and this is ultimately going to affect us but in ways that we don't fully understand yet Mm. because well we we know that we're in a synergistic relationship with the rest of the world but yet we don't seem to fully accept it we we know it rationally but we are not behaving like it and we are just scuppering ourselves we're not good long-term thinkers i think as a species no not that other species are necessarily better at it but no (laughs) (laughs) but other species aren't doing quite what we're doing no absolutely and so the rate of extinction at the moment so there's numbers of experts that suggest that we are in or are entering a sixth mass extinction Mm -hmm. so there's been five documented in the 3.5 billion years of life on earth that that earth has been another five mostly related to volcanoes and the occasional meteorite and there was one which i found really fascinating so i think it was the first mass extinction came about due to the rise of the appalachian mountains in north america and when they rose it caused the removal of atmospheric carbon dioxide um, and it cooled the planet and killed 85 percent of all species um 
But no so we need to grow some mountains to cool the planet. That's, Why is no one doing that? That's amazing. That's that <laughs> is fascinating. But there mm. was there was an ice age within the existence of humans as well, wasn't there? But did that not cause a mass extinction? A mass extinction is defined as over seventy five percent species loss. Okay. So I don't I don't know, maybe maybe not. No, I think um, that sounds high for that one. It's so. very high and the fact that the thing we're entering it. But so the average rate of extinctions like the background rate of extinctions is one species extinction per thousand years Mm. at the moment even in the last 10 years we've lost three species that we know of on average we've lost i think eight species of plant every three years since 1900 and i forgot what the figure was from other stuff but it is it's pretty high and Oh, okay, so leading on to my next question. Of the 8 million species that we estimate to be alive on Earth, and that's eukaryotes, so animals, plants, fungus, not things like bacteria. So of the 8 million species, what percentage of species have actually been identified by science? And I will give you the point for 10% within the correct answer. Uh, What percentage? Yeah, what percentage of animals do we actually, have we actually identified? Well, hang on, how do we know how many there are? If we haven't Base, identified them. My understanding is they're basing it on on what we do know and extrapolating patterns. Okay. But I didn't read the full detail. Okay. So I, I'm going to say it's probably going to be low, but... I mean, I would imagine that the ones that we that we haven't identified... I mean, there's deep sea ones, obviously. We don't know a lot about the deep sea. And then mm. it's going to be stuff in, you know, rainforests or very small insects and things like that. I am going to go for 60%. Sorry, no. that we No, sorry, that Ooh. we have identified 60%. That we so haven't 40 Wait, so which way have I... Wait, have I asked how many have we... So 40% that we have identified. No, 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 no. 60% that we have identified, 40% that we haven't identified. Okay, Th- you're wrong. This okay. is going to shock you. 15%. <gasps> what? 85% of the animal kingdom, not even including the potentially 1 trillion species of bacteria, but 85% of the animal kingdom, we don't know about, or that's... we're not well enough to know really very well. That's got to be mostly insects, right? Well, apparently insects are, I think, are one of the things, are, there's more studies. The majority of what's left is likely to be things like reptiles, amphibians in rainforests, that kind of like thing. I was going to say, like, little frogs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. perhaps some songbirds, some primates, yeah. and I guess, yeah, and lots of sea stuff. Yeah, there's got to be a bunch of deep sea stuff that we just have no idea about, yeah. But, so... At the moment, we know we're causing extinctions at a really high rate, mm. and we only know 15% of those species, and of that 15%, we we know this rate's really high. So the mm. most comprehensive list of threatened species is the IUCN Red List, um, which was established in 1964, and that's assessed only, so, which surprised me, 135,000 species, which out of 8 million is relatively low and of that 135,000 species over 25% of those are under threat so of the ones that we have analyzed 25% are under threat would it be fair to say that the ones that we don't know about might be less threatened because they're more remote from us and are going to be the last to be affected by by climate change and pollution and stuff like that and habitat loss i would say maybe things like habit it depends why i think if it's habitat loss yes if it's hunting yes but when it comes to things like pollution we know that for example the PFCs, the forever chemicals, are found up in lakes in Alaska in really remote areas that nobody ever goes because our proliferation is everywhere. Like mm. microplastics and everywhere. It's everything is everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know. I my hesitant and I wish it wasn't true, but I suspect some of these species we may never come to know because we don't know the damage we're doing to them. Mm. We don't understand the damage we're doing fully. But we know Damn. we know we're damaging a lot of what we can see, let alone what we can't. Um, Have you got anything so, more cheery for us? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh-huh. Back to bees. Obviously, companies are increasing in their ecological awareness, and that's 
a good thing. However, sometimes, as we discussed in our interview the other day, it does bring the risk of greenwashing or bee washing, yeah. um, which is defined as an unsubstantiated claim of a company's environmentally friendly practices or products. Um, now, earlier this year, Mark and Spencer's got a really negative response to their plan to release millions of honeybees into the English countryside because mm-hmm. putting more bees into the environment doesn't address the problem. In fact, it might just add to the problem. Yeah. Bees need food and habitat, not more bees. Yeah. So how many species of bees are there worldwide? And I will give you the point for a thousand either way. Oh man, I mean, I know even in the Northeast, because I've been following a bunch of plant and insect related Twitter feeds recently. As you do. As you do. Even in the Northeast, I think there's tons that are like specific to this region. So man, I mean, it's got, it's got to be astronomical. I don't even know how to extrapolate. So I'm going to say that it is... Oh god, I'm tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how I can do some kind of maths here, but I don't really <laughs> think it's possible. I think I'm just going to have to go on a wild punt. Oh god, I have no baseline for this. <laughs> and it's in the whole world, right? Yep. And um, I have to get yeah. within a thousand. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm going to say um maybe maybe I'll okay, maybe within 5000. Okay. Okay, uh, 200,000. No, 20,000. Okay. Do you know what? That was actually... I almost went for 20,000. I was so... Like, because I know that it's like a factor of 10 between them. Isn't that right? A factor of 10? Just an extra, yeah. I'm not a maths person. No, I know. But I was so like... I mean, it honestly, like, I was between those two answers. (laughs) Genuinely. Unlucky. I know. Um, So, yeah, there's 20,000 known... Like, who knows, really? There could be millions more. Um, but there's 20,000 known worldwide. Um, and apparently most of these are solitary bees. Mm. I must admit, I don't fully understand all the differences between the different bees. But there's... Well, some of them live in a hive and some of them don't, I think, is one of the big ones. Oh, is that, is that what it is? Oh, right. Well, yeah, solitary bees. They don't live in a hive. They, uh... Oh, right. That makes sense. Oh, lonely bees. They're not lonely. <laughs> That's their whole deal, <laughs> is that they don't want to live in a hive. You're... Yeah. <laughs> So apparently in Britain we have around about 270 species of bee, of which 250 of those are solitary bees. Okay, so I was probably overestimating when I said there were 100 just in the northeast alone, but... Well, there could be. Yeah, there could be. Well, I suppose like there's going to be some that are all over, and then there are some yeah. that are going to be specific. Yeah, but anyway. So, as we mentioned earlier, bees make honey, right? <laughs> what is the oldest example of edible honey? And so I've got four options for you here. I think um, I know this one. Ah, oh, damn, do you? Okay, so is it from the, oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this well, the Olmecans um, in Lavanta from around 3,000 years ago, from Egypt 3,000 years ago, um, the Farman Temple from the Eastern Han Dynasty just over 2,000 years ago, or from the Temple of Demeter 2,500 years ago. Okay, so when you say the oldest example of edible honey, do you mean yes. honey that we have found that is still edible now? Yes. Yes, then I know this, it's Egypt. <sighs> I do, I okay. do. Yes. Well, I haven't got a single one right yet today. Okay, These yes, one really point. Hard. One hey, point. T- to be fair, your questions have been way harder than usual this week. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I just got I just got really into it. Um, so yes, you're right. It's from Egypt. So the oldest known sample of honey was found in an ancient Egyptian tomb and is dated to approximately 3,000 years ago. Mm. And apparently, I don't know how they tested this, it's still perfectly edible. I thought it was interesting though when I was looking at the kind of Greek side of it, Demeter... The Greek goddess of agriculture was known as the pure mother bee, apparently. But I thought, 3,000-year-old honey, that's just crazy. Very cool. And yet they have an expiry day in the supermarket. So, yeah, but as we about? have discussed, we're not sure that's <laughs> Fake honey. Well, we think it might be. We think it might be. Um, we'll do so, an yeah. investigation. Also sort of related to Egypt, it's not, this isn't a particular question, but kind of came across in terms of biodiversity came across the the luxury effect i don't know if you came across this at all and how socioeconomic factors as you'd expect have a significant influence on pollinator abundance and so a recent study found that gardens are 50 times more likely to have pollinators in than more urban areas Mm. which are laden with man-made surfaces and this isn't a new phenomenon. I can never say phenomenon. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, always that comes into my head. Um, and there's examples of having differing biodiversity levels between labourers and the wealthy back in 1350 BC in uh, Egypt yeah. as well. Do you know, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, of course. Mm, um, and that's why we need socioeconomic equality to actually address the environmental issues too. Well, I think that, but also the fact that, I mean, yes, absolutely that. Don't get me 
Very yeah. Wrong. I'm not saying no. But <laughs> also, I think, you know, particularly in England, we very much, and it is starting to change, you know, with No Mo May and, and things like that. Mm. But there is, there is still quite a conservative approach, I think, to gardens, you know? Weeds mm. are seen as being ugly. They're seen as being <clears throat> undesirable. Actually, a lot of so-called weeds are really, really good for pollinators, particularly dandelions. Yeah. But you will have local councils like trimming verges. You mm. know, verges are an absolute boon for pollinators because they're so full of like incredible wildflowers. But it's all about this thing of being like neat and tidy. And I think that we really need a kind of cultural shift towards an understanding that these plants that we've been brought up to think of as weeds and as being undesirable are actually very desirable and very important pollinators i think that's gonna take some doing to shift but hopefully with younger generations coming up and being more aware of these ecological issues then that is gonna start to happen except Mm. of course the younger people are poorer and they don't have gardens so there's nothing we can do about it so (laughs) yeah yeah. our um, wildflower garden isn't going very well so far nothing's grown it's a process it's a slow process but you know even just like little lawn flowers the easiest thing you can possibly grow is dandelions they will grow whether (laughs) you want them to or not and they're great for bees you know so it's as much about working with what you already have i think Mm. all right what's next on the agenda i think that was all my questions Oh, and I only got one of those. <laughs> now, can I just say, though, this thing where you're like, out of all the numbers in the world, you have to decide on a number. And... Oh, well, I thought if I gave you options, it'd be too easy. Because you always get them when I just give you, like, <laughs> is it 1,000 or 5,000 or 20,000? And then you just, you get it right every time. So I thought I'd try and make it a bit harder. <laughs> I don't know. I think there the must be a happy medium. Okay. okay I'll but try any- and, but, maybe right. I'll give brackets next time. Oh. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Well, remember, this is if you last... win with one point, that'll <laughs> be quite upsetting to me. <laughs> well, I doubt it. I think I've, <laughs> I've got some questions that are probably quite easy, but we'll see. I don't. I don't okay. want to say that. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Famous last words. But uh, see, I've been trying to make my questions easier, and you've been trying to make your questions harder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's let's head into the world of humanities. So, the first thing that I have for you today is something biblical. Now, you may know this already. I don't know, but we'll see. Mm. (laughs) Uh, To to be honest with you, this is one of those ones where I don't know that you'll be able to guess the full answer unless you know it already. So, this is more of a kind of trivia type thing than a logical type thing, but we'll see. Okay. So, this is Samson's Riddle, and it can be found in Judges... 14.4. And the riddle goes, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. Can you figure out what he's talking about? You can probably figure out half of it because of the topic, but can you figure out the whole thing or do you know it? I don't know it. I'm assuming honey, Mm -hmm. but I'm guessing there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. So out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. So you've got the something to eat and the something sweet. So you've got to figure out out of the eater and out of the strong. So they're separate. Yeah. Well, they're they're not separate, they're connected, but it's two different things that are connected in the story. I'm terrible with riddles. Well, (laughs) this is a tricky one. This is... Even in the Wikipedia article that I read about it, it basically says it's impossible to figure it out because it's totally contextual. So I, I mean, it, you could maybe is it a guess. rock? It's not a rock. It's an eater, <laughs> and it's strong. So what's something that's strong and that eats you? Oh, eater like that. I thought it was eater like out of the ether. Oh no, sorry. No, eater. As in, I thought it was like an old English way of saying ether. Oh, okay. no. Sorry. So it's an eater. <laughs> it's something that goes... Ar, ar, ar. A strong eater. Yum, yum, it's yum, yum. A, a, a three-headed dog. No. A lion. Yes! Is it? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, can I have half a point? Then? Yes, you can. Yes. That's great. Yeah. It's So what it is, Samson had apparently come across a beehive in the carcass of a lion on oh. his way to his wedding, I think it was. Oh. Um, and he set this riddle and it was impossible to get. And the people that he set it to had to ask his wife for the answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go too deeply into it because it's the Bible and it just gives me a headache. But um, <laughs> but yeah, but that is that is the answer to the riddle. Huh. 
There is another riddle that has a biblical connection. It's not actually found in the Bible. I believe the source is Eastern mythology, so it's kind of apocryphal. But it Mm. is the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Both of them appear in the Bible. I think in the actual Bible text, it just says that she asked him some difficult questions. But I think various different people have kind of taken that and run with it to try and write the riddles that she might have asked him. And one of these is where she challenges him to tell the difference between a real flower and a perfect replica of a flower with the same scent and the same texture and all of this stuff. And he manages to figure it out when a bee lands on the real flower because the bee ain't fooled. Ah. So that's another somewhat biblical bee riddle. And there's actually a children's book which is based on this story. It's called King Solomon and the Bee. It's written by Dahlia Hardoff-Renberg and illustrated by Ruth Heller. I feel like I may have seen that. It's a nice story, though. It is, yeah. yeah. So so there you go. Uh, Yes, half a point. I think that's fair. Yes. Um, But that was a tricky one. That was more of a kind of trivia one, just in case you knew it. Okay, this one might be easier. We'll see. So, true or false... Sherlock Holmes canonically became a geek. A, a geek. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take that again. True or false? Sherlock Holmes canonically became a beekeeper after his retirement. What's canonically mean? Canonically means that it happened within the text itself rather than something that the author said later or something that other people have kind of made up about it. It's something that actually happens in the text. I wish you'd stop starting with questions. This is easy. <laughs> I don't know. I want to go with false. I feel like it's going to be false, but somebody else is going to be a beekeeper in the text. Okay. I, feel, I, I feel like it'd be too easy for it to be true, although I can also I can picture it, but I feel like it. Uh, I'm, go- I'm going for false. Oh, boy. So you know how I said this was an easy one, and then you said <laughs> it would be too easy for it to be true? <laughs> uh, it's true. I'm sorry. Um, uh, so I mean, this... I'm only myself to blame there. <laughs> so this is a quote from his last bow and epilogue of Sherlock Holmes and this is uh, Watson speaking so I'm going to do a Watson voice <laughs> tired Holmes we heard of you as living the life of a hermit among your bees and your books in a small farm upon the south downs and then Sherlock a says great Watson voice. thank you and then Sherlock says and this is Sherlock's voice exactly Watson here is the fruit of my leisured ease, the magnum opus of latter years. He picked up the volume from the table and read out the whole title, Practical Handbook of Bee Culture, with some observations upon the segregation of the Queen. Alone I did it. Behold, the fruit of the pensive nights and laborious days when I watched the little working gangs as I once watched the criminal world of London. So that's he's uh, not only does he keep bees, but he's written a book about bees. And a lot, I mean... I can picture that. That's yeah, it's interesting, image. isn't it? And apparently he loves bees and hates wasps. I'm not sure if that's in the Conan Doyle or if that's in one of the apocryphal stories, which I'll talk about a little bit here, because as you may or may not know, there are like a zillion apocryphal Sherlock Holmes stories, which is, you know, other, or Sherlock Holmes pastiches or whatever you want to call them, written okay. by people other than Conan Doyle. Basically fan fiction, but that got published. Uh, so there was a, a film that came out in 2015 directed by Bill Condon called Mr. Holmes, where an older Holmes was played by Ian McKellen. I saw this movie in the cinema when it came out. It's a really, really interesting movie, and that focuses on his later years when he's a beekeeper in Sussex. It's based on A Slight Trick of the Mind by Mitch Cullen. There's also a sort of novella that I read in university. It's called The Final Solution by Michael Shaban. And again, it's Holmes as an elderly beekeeper in Sussex. And actually, interestingly, in both of them, there's sort of a friendship or a relationship that develops, an innocent relationship, I should say, between Holmes and a young boy who's visiting Sussex from somewhere else. In Mr. Holmes, it's the son of his housekeeper, and in The Final Solution, it's a German Jew who's come over on the kinder transport. And they're also both, to some degree, about the Second World War. In Mr. Holmes, there's something about the bombing of Japan. And obviously, in The Final Solution, you know, there's this Second World War theme. So that's interesting. 
It's interesting the relationship between beekeeping and that kind of sense of salvation and solitude, I suppose. Yes, like it absolutely. being a, a place to go and relax and find peace, I guess. Definitely. And I think that comes up a lot. I think, I mean, mm. you know, well. In the film we watched. In the film last we watched. Yeah, we watched mm. The Secret Life of Bees. I think there's definitely a sense of that, of, of it being a kind of haven. Yes. Kind of across the board, I think. Whenever you, in a movie or a book, meet a character who is a beekeeper, you can probably be sure that they're going to basically be a good egg and that there's that they're probably going to be a little bit of a hermit, a little bit removed from society, but basically, like, decent. And they're probably mm. going to be, if they're not the protagonist, they're probably going to be, like, helpful to the protagonist in some way. Mm. Um, and I definitely think there is this kind of idea of virtue being associated with bees. Yes, yes. But just quickly, there are other home stories that are set during his beekeeping years. There's A Taste for Honey by H.F. Hurd, which was adapted as The Sting of Death which was like an episode of one of those anthologies. Less peaceful. <laughs> well, yeah, true. Like it was an anthology mystery show. They used to be really popular and they made uh, an episode of that starring Boris Karloff based on A Taste of Honey. There's also the Mary Russell series of young adult novels by Laurie R. King. So Mary Russell is the character and Laurie mm. King is the author. And in that, Sherlock Holmes befriends a Jewish-American teenage girl and she becomes his protege. So there's also kind of a Jewish connection there as well between the final solution by michael shaban who is uh, an american jew as well and and these mary russell books which i'd never heard of before all right so that's homes for you let's move on to the next one it's okay, another ready. true or false <coughs> now is this one going to be too easy let's see <laughs> <sighs> i'm gonna make this so much harder next time all right yeah. it is traditional to tell the bees when a member of the family dies true or false traditional so it's traditional to tell the bees when a member of the family dies. Mm -hmm. Traditional in which? In what culture? Well, I don't Our know. Our culture? Maybe in no culture. Who's to ah. say? Because we don't know if it's true or false. But if it were true, then I would tell you. True. <laughs> it is true. Yes! <laughs> so it's particularly common in England, but it's also found is in... Is it? It is. Traditionally, you know, like in the olden times... The olden times. The olden oh, times. That'd be why I didn't know them. <laughs> <laughs> it's also found in other parts of Europe and in the US. According to an 1889 article by W. Kite, I don't know what this person's first name is. I, they were only mm -hmm. credited as W. Kite. It was 1889. It's called Telling the Bees. A Nottinghamshire tradition had the widow hmm. of beekeeper or the surviving female relative of a beekeeper say to the bees, the master's dead, but don't you go. Your mistress will be a good mistress to you. Hmm. So you've got a reassurance those bees that you're going to look after them so they won't fly off. Um, That's interesting. In yeah. the, again, in the film that we watched last night, The Secret Life of Bees, they were talking about sharing love with the bees and communication with them, weren't Definitely. they? Definitely. And then there's that song, it's called The Honey Song, and it's about putting, uh, yeah. put a beehive on my grave. Yes, yeah. that was lovely. Yeah. So there are also quite a few poems about this practice, or a whole bunch, but this one is a section from Home Ballads by John Greenleaf Whittier, and here it goes. Before them, under the garden wall, forward and back, went drearily singing the chore girl small, draping each hive with a shred of black. Trembling I listened, the summer sun had the chill of snow, for I knew she was telling the bees of one, gone on the journey we all must go. Stay at home, pretty bees, fly not hence. Mistress Mary is dead and gone. So that, that's one example. There's also a novel, Tell It to the Bees by Fiona Shaw. And that was made into a film in 2018. It was directed by Annabelle Jankel and it starred Anna Paquin and Holiday Granger. This is another one that I saw in the cinema back in 2018. God feels mm. like so long ago. It does. Um, <laughs> and it's a really lovely romance. It didn't get great reviews, but I actually really liked it. Anna Paquin is kind of like the dashing romantic heroine and Holiday Granger is the love interest. It's a very like lesbian slash bisexual love story. It's very sweet. And there's a scene where Anna Paquin like dives into a lake, which I enjoyed a lot. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know what the Colin Firth lake scene in Pride and Prejudice is for straight people? <laughs> <laughs> like that was that scene for me. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> straight women love that scene. I don't know what to tell you. So... 
Speaking <clears throat> of the movies, in this 1991 family movie named after a song by The Temptations, a boy dies from an allergic reaction to bee stings. Hmm. Do I get any more clues? Mm, I think you either know it or you don't with this one, I'm afraid. But can you think of a 1991? Can you think of like an early 90s family movie that's named after a song? Probably a few. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> oh, yeah, that famous Temptation song. <laughs> it has honey, honey in it. I, it does have honey in it, but there are bees in the question, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Honey, honey, do, 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 do. That's not a clue. I was just singing oh, okay. a honey song, sorry. <laughs> I can't even think what that one is. You are my candy girl. Oh, uh, yeah. And you got sugar me puffs. for wanting you. <laughs> it may have been in a Sugar <laughs> Puffs advert, but it was not originally a Sugar Puffs song. <laughs> you mean Sugar Puff Monster didn't sing it? He may have sung it. I, I don't remember that. Actually, yeah, that does ring a bell now, so. Ah, good times. Anyway, I'm, I'm guessing you don't know this one. I was hoping that it'll come to me, but at the moment, I don't know. No. Uh, well, yeah, it's My Girl, which was kind of like a 90s classic for a lot of people of our generation. But if you didn't see it, you didn't see it. It's Macaulay Culkin. He goes to the woods. He's looking for a mood ring, apparently. I'd forgotten this. but uh, I remember mood rings. Yeah, I remember those too. Um, I was always dark, though. <laughs> oh, no. That's <laughs> terrible. I think that's probably just to do with your circulation. I maybe, think so. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, like, Anna Chlumsky, I think her name is, is the main girl. And she, like, loses her mood ring in the woods. And then Macaulay Culkin goes back to look for the mood ring. And he gets stung by bees. He has an allergic reaction. He dies. And then there's hmm. this really famous scene in the movie where, like, they're burying him. And I guess it's an open casket. Uh, but she lives. She lives in a funeral parlor. Right. Anyway, it's an open That sounds casket. dark. It, it, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, it has dark well, what, what happens next? Right, so the famous scene is that Macaulay Culkin is lying in this coffin and he's not wearing his glasses. And in real, when he was alive, he used to wear glasses. And Anna Chlumsey comes in and she's kind of like, his glasses, he can't see without his glasses. He needs his glasses. <laughs> Just a famous scene. <laughs> Doesn't have a lot to do with bees, but there you have it. Huh. Um, I'm not sure I saw that. Yeah, I I mean I only saw it once, but it was just one of those kind of generational classics for a lot of people. But like you know, not everybody's going to have seen it. I think I was just too onto Disney. Fair enough. Didn't, um, didn't go out of cartoons very often. <laughs> there were. Did you ever see The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan? Oh, I did have that. Yeah, that I did, I, I quite liked. Great movie. Anyway, so there are a few other pieces of media where a severe reaction to a bee sting is a key plot point. A bee or a wasp sting, I should say. One of them is Mr. Holmes, which I talked about. Mm -hmm. There is also a Futurama episode, The Sting, which I rewatched recently. I don't know if you've ever seen much Futurama. I, I did used to watch quite a bit of it. So there's a really good episode where they go to collect space honey from these giant space bees, as you that, do. I might have seen that one. And it's a really dangerous mission, but Leela insists and then she gets stung by the queen but Fry leaps in front of her body and blocks the sting and then he dies or does he obviously <laughs> um <laughs> and it's kind of it's a really trippy episode and it's got kind of a mystery feel to it and it's I really enjoy it I think it's one of the good ones one of the, you know, one of the best ones. There's also an Agatha Christie story, Death in the Clouds, and that involves a wasp sting as a red herring. But interestingly, I couldn't think of a lot of other things where, like, a sting was a really big part of the story. Uh, even though there's so much media about bees, like, stings aren't usually a huge, like, plot device. <laughs> As a shameless Bridgerton fan, along with many millions of others, I thought it might be worth noting the key storyline of bees in series two, being both a symbol of small but mighty danger to some very powerful people, and eventually a symbol of love. You know what I mean if you've watched it. That's interesting. I was trying to think, if we've seen then that bees tend to be represented in a more peaceful, kind of solitude sort of way, mm. and stings aren't really represented, which is, I suppose, the negative side of bees for us, mm. is that, unless is it 
would it come up more in things like thrillers and horror films? Yeah, there, there was some, there was some like I think maybe seventies or eighties movies that were kind of like yeah, like swarms of killer bees. There was a little bit of a trend for that for a short time, but it's not a huge thing. I think, and and I think this comes through in Secret Life of Bees again, which we watched. There's a sense that if you treat the bees right, they'll treat you right, kind of. It feels like are they are they kind of used as a vehicle for representing nature, perhaps, mm. and it's kind of where where somebody like Sherlock Holmes retires and becomes a beekeeper. That kind of that person's becoming at one with themselves and the world around them, Definitely. and I suppose giving back to the bee, and you kind of getting more into that symbiotic natural relationship, which we should all have with the world, where we look after each other and look after the world around us and the bees. And that seems, I don't know, I, f- I feel like it's probably more of a medium for that than other. But it's interesting, isn't it, that there's insects, like a test of moral purity kind of thing going yes. on. Yeah. But the Queen Latifah character in Secret Life of Bees does say, I've been stung so many times, I don't even feel it anymore. So she's kind of, she's not saying mm. that they never sting me. It is something that does happen. And in Mr. Holmes, again, you know, there is this discussion of like, there's some exchange, you can't remember exactly where it comes, but he basically says, look, sometimes they just sting you. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Oh, so it's not just karma then? <laughs> no, no. But it is interesting that, like, generally I think bees are seen as, yeah, as, as like, good guys and as representing, like, a kind of solitary and productive lifestyle, mm. in a way. Not always, but quite often. Um, is it a metaphor for nature and life and sometimes, mm. sometimes there's a... There's some bad bits, but that's okay. And you come to still have that synergistic relationship where it's a net positive. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a bee is the best representation of nature, I don't know. I mean, they they have this incredibly unusual, at least honeybees do, have this incredibly unusual social structure that Mm. maybe, you know, maybe the metaphor is to do with society you know and again i think that's something that we see in the secret life of bees a little bit is like the rules of the bee yard are like the rules of the world and yeah um i think there's something odd about bees because they are so different and alien from us being insects and yet the fact that they have a social structure and that they produce food maybe reminds mm. us of ourselves. I think they're like a strange mirror for us where we see yeah. we see a version of ourselves in them. I don't know. The thing that makes about, sense. Yeah, I think the thing about beekeeping particularly is that it is something that requires skill and patience and, I guess, respect. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, I remember reading a Goosebumps book I think it's probably called something like Help, I'm a Bee. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of making that up, but I wouldn't be surprised if it it did turn out to be called Help, I'm a Bee. Okay, I thought I was going to get away with this, but it's not Help, I'm a Bee. It's Why I'm Afraid of Bees. Sorry, RL. there's a really there's a bad beekeeper in that and he's mean to his bees so it's not always the case but i I think there is just something about the way that we think of beekeeping maybe more than bees in and of themselves that it's i don't understand the smoking practice i don't understand why that would calm bees surely that would like they're like help my house is on fire well didn't you listen when queen latifah told you she said it calms them. Yeah, and she said that it drowns out the smell of their hormones that they put out when they have like a stress response or that they're giving a danger signal. But um, it just seems counterintuitive. Yeah, but I mean, the bees have very different intuition than we do. <laughs> and um, as Kenny pointed out when we watch it, who found that out? Who found out that smoking bees <laughs> calms them down? <laughs> How does anybody find anything out? I mean, how did they... I always wondered this. Who baked the first loaf of bread, right? Like, how did they get there? I bet it wasn't sourdough. Probably not. they would have given up from the beginning. Well, interestingly, though, I mean, commercial yeast wasn't available for a really long time. So a lot of early bread would have been sourdough or would have been, like, yeastless bread. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Don't uh... want to talk about sourdough. (laughs) Um, I think it's the scientific method, isn't it? 
that you try things potluck trial and error (laughs) and you keep trying and narrowing it down to try and figure out what the hell is going on and then sometimes it's just your best guess and sometimes you can confirm things and you just keep going on like that and over the generations knowledge builds on itself until you know more and more than than the people and yet we only know 15 percent of the species on earth how how can we okay. know that we could smoke bees okay. out and not know eighty okay, percent? What what are the other crazy? Okay, but like, how many species do you think those other species know? Probably not as many. <laughs> so I guess. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> look, there are good sides and bad sides to us, just like there are good sides and bad sides to bees. Um. Mm. Nice link. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, I have one more question for you. You've got one and a half right now, right? I think that's right, yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, so let's see. So in the Royal Doll story, Royal Jelly, Royal Jelly is used, A, to feed a baby who isn't thriving, B, to make a woman eternally youthful, C, to cure a mysterious illness, or D, to make a recipe extra delicious. Hmm. My instinct is one of the latter two. Okay. I feel like so a baby that's not thriving, eternal youth for a woman, making a recipe delicious. Uh, I forgot the other one. What mysterious was illness, a cure for a mysterious, mysterious illness. So mysterious illness sounds like something that George and the Marvelous Medicine would do. Now, I yeah. maybe this will help a bit. This is one of Roald Dahl's stories for adults. So more his oh, okay. tales of the unexpected style stories. Oh, okay. Mm. I'm going to go for Eternal Youth then, because that's what all adults want, right? <laughs> <laughs> so is that your final answer? Yes, that's my final answer. Okay. Well, I'm afraid yeah. that's not right. It's <sighs> actually to feed a baby who isn't thriving. Not oh. only that, but it turns out that the father, who was a beekeeper also fed himself royal jelly to treat his infertility. Uh, So then then they give the royal jelly to the baby. It starts getting more and more bee-like, and it's very creepy. Right. It's a a fun little creepy story. I don't know if you've ever read any of Roldar's Tales of the Unexpected or any of his other short stories for adults, but there are a lot of I think I have them, but I don't think I've read them. I think I've got one on the bookshelf. Yeah, I enjoy them a lot. This is one of his slightly creepy ones, but... uh, Yeah, yeah. that does sound a bit creepy. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, I think that may have been the first time I ever heard of Royal Jelly, and then it briefly got super trendy at one point in, like, the Mm. 2000s. I don't know if you remember that? I think it was around that time. I I remember it being in a lot of cosmetics. Yes, yes, definitely. Mm. And it was like everybody suddenly started talking about it. It was just one of these like fads. I will just go through my list of extra things that I wanted to mention fairly quickly and then I will hand back over to you for some action points. So there is a Jules Verne story, The Mysterious Island and there was also a movie I want to say 1961 I think it was uh, where there are giant bees (laughs) um Speaking of giant pollinators, oh, and this was something that I wanted to mention as well, is that, yeah, there is this kind of, like, bees good, wasps bad thing, both Mm. in a lot of this literature and also, I think, just generally in people's minds. Whereas I read an article recently, I don't know if you read this, saying that wasps are actually really important pollinators as well. That's interesting. Mm. I I didn't specifically read it, and it makes complete sense, but Mm. you don't associate them with being pollinators in the same way, do you? No, no. When I think that's partly, and I think this is something that Barbara talks about quite a lot, actually. Uh, Barbara Keating, who we did our interview with, which I believe will have gone out prior to this. If it hasn't come out yet, it'll come out after this. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that she talks a lot about how people often romanticize honeybees, Mm. whereas there are a lot of solitary bees that are just as important, but because they don't produce honey, people don't care as much about them. You know, yeah. and I think the same holds true for wasps. And people have this idea that, like, wasps... And other wasps, pollinators in general, I suppose. Yeah, just all kinds of insects that don't have that same charismatic aura that uh, that honeybees do. Mm. Um, yeah, there's definitely this idea about wasps that they'll just sting you... Because they don't die when they sting you, that they'll sting you and not care and blah, blah, blah. 
However, I've never, to my knowledge, been stung by a wasp. It might have been a wasp that did sting me, but if it was a wasp, it did die. <laughs> I, I got stung once fairly recently. I've ne- Up until last year, I've never been stung by a wasp, and then I got stung by one twice. And you're supposed to stand still, and I, A, I didn't know that at the time, but I mm. kind of was like, ah, it's steamy. Yeah, like it, understandably. It, it, and through, through my leggings, I was wearing running leggings, Oof. which had a little bit of mesh on the side of the leg, and it stung me through there. And I Ooh. don't... Well, I that think sounds really I must... unpleasant. Yeah, I think I must have brushed into it as I walked past something, I guess, and it mm. must have thought I was attacking it because it really went for me. I know. So I don't know what, don't know what I did to upset that. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, as I say, I have never been stung by a wasp apart from maybe that one time, in which case, mm. like, I don't blame the wasp for that. Yeah. And I've always just been careful. I don't go near them. They stay still when they come towards me. They've never stung me. So this idea that they're, like, maliciously going out to sting people all the time... Mm because they can i think is maybe overstating the case a little yeah. bit i i've not been aware of it particularly around me like i think me being stung was the first time i've seen anyone stung hmm. i don't around think it's me. that common really no but I people just have this this dislike of them anyway i was going to say speaking of giant bees and wasps there is an episode called the unicorn and the wasp where a gigantic alien wasp is responsible for the real-life disappearance of Agatha Christie in 1926. So in real life, Agatha Christie did go missing in 1926 for 10 days. In this episode, it was because of a wasp. I forget the details. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, there's also another Doctor Who episode, which I think is from the same season, because they both have Donna in them, and I think she was only in it for one season. And the explanation in that episode for the drop in the bee population is that some of the bees were aliens from the planet Melissa Majoria, which I think just means big honey, and they went back home. <laughs> and I, I, I look at stuff like this and I'm like, I used to really like this show. <laughs> and when I see that, I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, Have was... you thought about um, Bumblebee Guy in The Simpsons and what he represents? Oh, that is fascinating i think he <laughs> represents the mexican-american population oh, maybe not so much no that's a great question and that is one that i'm gonna have to go away and think about uh, you but, can add it in later yeah I'll, uh, I'll just edit that in once i've thought of something yeah i still don't have anything for this however wikipedia does Bumblebee Man is a caricature parody of El Chapulín Colorado, a character created and portrayed by Mexican television comedian Roberto Gómez Bolaños, aka Chesperito, and his show consists of simple skits, often involving heavy slapstick. The staffers said that whenever they watched Univision, this character was always on. Thus, they created Bumblebee Man, who is also always on the air when the Spanish-language channel is depicted. His costume was based on one used in the Saturday Night Live sketch, The Killer Bees. And that's the deal with Bumblebee Man. There's, uh, there's a song called Beeswing by Richard Thompson. I don't know if you know this song. It's not really about bees. It just uses a beeswing as a metaphor. Uh, but mm. he did recently come out with a memoir that took its title from the song as well. It's a beautiful song. I recommend you check it out if you haven't already. Obviously, there's Bee Movie. Do we really need to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Maybe let's not. I did consider watching that with the kids prior to this episode. But, uh, well, but we didn't. <laughs> do you know what's interesting about Bee Movie? and I say that with some trepidation, (laughs) that it's a male bee, and of course male bees don't make honey. Good point. Yeah. Male bees just, uh, they're the drones, and they are just what's... I have sworn on this podcast before, but I'm trying to keep it a little bit more... uh, (laughs) Family friendly. Family friendly (laughs) now. What's a nice way of saying what the drones are for? They're for genetic (laughs) diversity. Ah, good one, yes. Yes. As as Barbara told us. Um, <laughs> right, what else do we have? Right, yeah, so in the past, like, mm, I'm going to say seven years. That's not very... Um, <laughs> it's probably longer than that, but the, the earliest one that I could find is from 2014. It just mm. feels like there's been, like, a big bee boom in literature. There have been a bunch of books that have come out over the last seven years which are bee-related. So, the first one is called The Bees by Laylene Paul from 2014, and it's from the point of view of a worker bee. 
I've just got mm. a little quote from that, which I will read out now. Flora took pleasure in the delicacy of her approach and studied the ways of the smallest, sweetest blooms she could find, tiny pimpernels and forget-me-nots hiding in the pockets of the fields. The energy of the sun on her body and the joy of foraging filled her soul. She flew the fields and gathered until the light began to fade and she heard the sound of her forager sister's wings turning for home. Then she joined them. Which I think is a a nice little piece of writing. Mm. Um, So yeah, so it's kind of like a dystopian science fiction type story, but from the point of view of a bee. But there's a ton more of these. There's The History of Bees by Maya Lunda. And it's split into three different sections. And in the section that's set in the future, bees have become extinct. And it's a woman's job to actually paint pollen onto fruit trees. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, which is really interesting. I mean, apparently it does take a few liberties with the science. So, for example, grass has also become extinct, whereas actually grass is not pollinated by insects. So, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> and then there's one called The Beekeeper of Aleppo, which I don't know very much about, but I think, I mean, like, it was a huge bestseller uh, that came out in 2019. And there was one very recently came out in February of this year, that's uh, 2021, just in case there's a huge <laughs> delay in this episode coming out. And it's called, yes, The Ardent Swarm by Yaman Manaya. And both of those last two are set in kind of like the Middle East, obviously Aleppo's uh, Syria. The Ardent Swarm, I can't remember where it's set does exactly. It, but... Does it have that similar theme of beekeeping being related to peace? Would it you does, say, and I, connection from to... what I have read of it, I believe certainly in the Ardent Swarm, the main beekeeper character is very much the virtuous character, and there is also a kind of metaphor. I mean, a swarm, of course, is when, and this is another thing that Queen Latifah told us, when the queen decides to leave, so it's it's when the bees get angry, you know, and that's when they're dangerous. Yes. So it did, is. Did Barbara touch on that as well? I think she? Barbara mentioned that as well. Yeah. So, so obviously, a swarm of bees is not a peaceful uh, moment in the bees' existence. No. And I think that it's. I but now I'm trying to remember exactly when it's set. I think it might have been set against the backdrop of the Arab Spring, possibly. Um, okay. I did read a tiny bit of it, but I didn't. It was one of these. Okay, so I have a Prime account simply because I am a student and it's very cheap and it does give me access to a lot of movies that I otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to watch. So right now I have it. I appreciate that that's problematic and I'm not going to have it forever. But one of the things about that is that every month, if you're a Prime member, you get to choose one of six free books. And this I do? Was, yes. I've got Prime. I didn't realise that. Well, you should be getting an email that's first reads and... Oh. You might not have opted into prime reading. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Anyway. Let's look for that. But yeah, so this was one of those and I read the beginning of it, but it didn't grab me. So I picked a different book, but that was a recent one. But like The Beekeeper of Aleppo, I think was huge. Like I feel like I saw it on bookshelves constantly, you know, like in Waterstones, it would be like, these are the big books, these are the best-selling books. And then on the library app, it's always like one of the big ones as well. So, in um, some of the reading I was doing, I came across that Angelina Jolie has become the what is, what is she doing? It was something to do with training female beekeepers. But um, it was just quite interesting that again relationship, I suppose, between socioeconomics and the kind of training women to become beekeepers Definitely. as a kind of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was. Yeah, there was a documentary, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, it was called Honeyland. Hmm. And that was about a female beekeeper in a remote area. I think it was somewhere in Eastern Europe. But yeah, no, it's really interesting. But it does feel like people are really becoming much more interested in bees and suddenly it's very zeitgeisty. Um, There's also a short story by E. Lily Yu. uh, It's called The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees. That's from 2011. And uh, again, you know, there is definitely this idea that like wasps are the bad guys and bees the good guys. Although that, I think, is not in The Bees by Laylene Paul, where there is definitely a sense that there's like a kind of oppressive hierarchy within the bee society. Mm. 
Okay, so we've talked a lot about the importance of pollinators and the importance of biodiversity and how humans are doing a lot of bad things to both of those. Yes. Um, but they we want really some clear action out. points. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to choose just a few manageable action points that we can all do as a starting point. Excellent. There's obviously lots that we can do, but if we're going to do anything, let's focus on these three. So firstly... Plant and cultivate native wildflowers wherever you can fit them, whether it's a front garden, a plant pot outside your window, an allotment business, wherever, wherever you can fit them. But take some time to choose plants that are actually native to your area, not just ones you've purchased locally. Just try and spend a little bit of time working out what is native. And sometimes the answer is as simple as just having a patch of land that you don't touch and just let what naturally grows there do just that. The second is avoid synthetic pesticides. Use natural strategies where you can if you need to deter pests. Mm. And thirdly is get involved and follow projects that protect pollinators to build your own understanding and discuss it with others around you. Right. And, and I then, just want to put in a little plug for Jesmond Community Orchard in Newcastle. And there's also the Meadows Community Garden, I think it is, in Nottingham, which are both really amazing projects. Yes, so check them out if you're local. And if not, find one local to you. Yeah, I mean, there are community gardens and like community projects like that all over the place. Obviously, like there's allotments. I mean, allotments are a tricky one. We don't have time to get into the insane internal politics of allotments, yeah. but uh, I did have a really interesting conversation with somebody about this the other day. But, you know, like, hopefully there will be some resource near you. Even if you do live in an urban area where you don't have access to your own garden, hopefully there will be some kind of community project that will help you get involved if that is something that you feel you can do. Yes. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, so... Love the bees, and the bees are great, but let's not forget the much maligned wasps and all the other insects that we don't talk about who are also incredibly important pollinators. And bats. And bats! Oh my and god. And monkeys. Well, monkeys, okay. I mean, yes, monkeys. We don't have <laughs> native monkeys, though, in this country. You don't know who's listening, though. That's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, bats, I, I do just want to say on the subject of bats, because I feel like particularly in the last year or so, as we record, two years or whatever it is <laughs> when this comes out. Um, Five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Bats were getting a little bit of a bad rap. Um, are they? Oh, well, I like bats. Oh, I love bats, but, you know, just because of the whole COVID thing. You know, oh, right. Some people were blaming Well, don't bats. lick bats. Indeed, indeed. But some people were blaming the bats. And I think, like, people get scared of bats because they might go in their hair or because they're vampires or they're creepy or whatever. No, like Halloween animals. I don't know. People are weird. Oh, um, they're so cute, though. They're lovely. Bats are amazing. And let's all just have a shout out for bats and let's not blame Ooh, them for bats. problems <laughs> that we ourselves as a species created. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, yeah, we're pro-bat on this program. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag <I'm>, pro-bat. <laughs> and I'm putting my foot down and I'm making a stand. We are pro-bat on this show. Okay. All right, let's... let's wrap things up before I, <laughs> before I get massively distracted again. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll be back. Uh, don't know where, don't know when, but we'll meet again. But probably wherever you found us here. Yeah, probably the same feed unless something <laughs> goes terribly place. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So fine that I'm a crushing where she lay. She was a lost child. She was running wild. She said, as long as there's no price on love, I'll stay. And you wouldn't want me any other way. Well, thank you so much for listening. Keen-eared listeners may have noticed that we did refer to a Barbara Keating interview, which hasn't gone out yet, but all going to plan that should be coming out in the very near future. We're working on it now. And our next full episode is going to be all about pescatarianism. So please tune in. And again, we did actually record that this year. What? 
what? That's crazy. As always, please follow us at the most scale on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at the most scale at gmail.com. And I always say like, rate, review, subscribe. I don't think you can like a podcast. Uh, I mean, you can like it, but I don't think there's a button for that. So um, rate, review, subscribe, just those ones. But I I hope you do like us. (laughs) Okay, see ya.